podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Migrants and refugees in situations of conflict and forced migration. 
he then was the recipient of a MacArthur Award, which uh, took him beyond the boundaries of Pakistan, Afghanistan, etc. I think a lot of us thought that he wrote up the reward in order to do uh, a lot of traveling. He ended up in uh, following Afghan migrants to uh, New York City, following the, uh, the food carts, uh, to Alaska, to uh, <coughs> Australia. Uh, a fascinating study uh, of which he is now beginning to write about uh, in, in further detail. He's currently working uh, on researching the political economy of Afghanistan through the circulation and the use of transnational resources with the intention of highlighting how the action of international agencies and non-governmental organizations contributes to the emergence of new forms of sovereignty and governance. So you can see just by these, these uh, areas of, of research that he, he's moving uh, uh, beyond and around the kind of uh, fuzzy borderlands uh, that we have uh, over the area of uh, forced migration. His most interesting study, which emerges from his, uh, his, uh, his doctorate, um, is, uh, uh, was first published in, in French, of course, and then in English in 2005, War and Migration, Social Networks and Economic Strategies of the Hazaras of Afghanistan. Particularly interesting in the way that it deals with various forms of migration, which we label as either forced or economic or so on. Um, for the period of time since his dissertation, he's written a number of uh, fascinating articles, uh, both in English and French. He's very comfortable in both languages, and it's a pleasure to be able to read his articles uh, in both languages. I. Um, could go on and on about the fellowships and the various awards and the activities that he's been involved in, but maybe I'll leave it for you to explore that at the reception after his presentation. I will turn over to Alessandro now uh, to give his presentation, after which time he has agreed to take questions. So if his comments uh, really provoke a response in you, uh, then it would be really great to hear what you have to ask him at the end of his presentation. So let me give you Alessandro. Let me start by uh, thanking, by, by saying my emotion to be here tonight, uh, thanking the Refugee Studies Center and obviously its director, Professor Domchati, for having invited me. It's really, I must say, um, an incredible honor for me, intimidating honor, when I look at all the people who preceded me and delivered the Carlson Lecture in the past. So um, really it came as a big surprise and uh, I cope with the, with the stress, thinking that through me, the Refugee Studies Center wanted also to invite six million Afghan refugees. So in their name also, uh, thank you, and I feel a little bit backed by them, and uh, that's my way to, to stand in front of you, and in spite of, uh, let's say, the big, big pressure I can feel. And among all the people who preceded me, I would like to mention uh, only James Scott, because I had the honor to work for, for a couple of years with him, and I learned a lot and also someone like Mark Daffield, whom I never met, but uh, who is a constant source of, uh, I would say, inspiration. So it's a, it's a great honor, and uh, uh, I want to warmly thank you. Thank you also for coming, and I can see in the, in the room, in the audience, uh, many old friends, many new friends. So thank you too to be here and to give me, give me your warm support. 
So this lecture, as Don Chatty just mentioned, has been established to pay tribute to the work of Elizabeth Carlson, who was a key figure in the development of refugees and forced migration as an important field of study within anthropology. She was an early supporter also of the Refugee Studies Center, fully convinced as she was of the importance for the displaced people to have a voice that cut across various worlds. Better ways of conceptualizing their experience through independent research was needed basement for advocacy. Think differently to act differently could have been her motto. And the motto of the people who have succeeded uh, from Barbara Harrell Bond to Don Chatty at the head of the uh, Refugee Studies Center. So let me st start by a small joke. A Canadian friend of mine who is working in Geneva before coming here, he told me, you will see Americans very often they say, I'm sorry, I will not be able to, uh, to talk, I will, I will just have to read my, my text because it's very complicated. While British say, I'm sorry, I could not read my text because I haven't time to write a written text. <laughs> so I don't know if it's little tale is more nasty, is nastier for Americans or British, uh, I let you decide, he's a Canadian, but coming from Switzerland, obviously I'm neutral. But uh, I think that Afghans would advise me, don't follow any path. British or Americans, they are all the same. <laughs> so uh, my, intro my presentation will successfully expand on the different terms appearing in the title. The first part will discuss the ever-evolving meaning of concepts such as state and sovereignty. Anthropologists have documented the many political systems that exist in the world, and, the sta and that states may take a variety of forms across time and space. They are particularly well equipped to move beyond the endless debate on the erosion of state power today, which characterize indeed many studies on globalization. I will argue that we are not facing the ultimate crisis of the nation state. In a context of shifting sovereignty, on the, one of the most striking features of today's world might be the coexistence between the generalization of the nation state as the entity organizing the world's politics, on the one hand, and then the, 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 the increased scope of action and visibility of transnational actors like NGOs in particular. In the second part of my presentation, I will rely on my research among Afghans a massive demographic case, as we will see, to, to ask what can be the position of refugees in such a world of multiple and overlapping sovereignties. My thesis is that many potential refugees opt for alternative forms of protection and support. They strive to diversify their assets and spread risks. Such a diversification can be observed in political affiliations, economic activities, geographical residencies, and last but not least, legal statuses. If displaced people may seem in a limbo when we look at their situation from a state-centric perspective, my goal here is to show that they are agents of their own life in spite of all the hardships they are facing, and still capable to develop efficient strategies largely grounded on the dispersion and mobility of the members of the domestic units and solidarity groups. Finally, in my concluding remark, I will very briefly refer to my la the last part of my title, A View from the Margins. The question mark unsurprisingly indicates my doubt. 
These are directly inspired by Jean and John Komaro's most recent book, Theory from the South, just published a few months ago. I consider that the unpredictable and often disruptive effects of late modernity can be observed sharply in what is called nowadays the Global South. But perhaps some of the most promising, promising sorry, expression of social reinvention too. Afghanistan, far from being a marginal place, can therefore be seen as a key case study, a laboratory even, of structural factors at play in the whole world. So a kind of good food for thought. I think we can really look at Afghanistan somehow to look at our future. Not a very appealing prospect, obviously. A small word on the first slide. So I don't know if it's very clear because I, I wanted to have a little bit vague on the, on the background. I took it in September 2000, no, 1995. I was a very young graduate student in Chaman at the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's returnees, Afghan refugees going back home and registering at the border encashment of UNHCR. And we had a chat. And uh, obviously it was quite tense because UNHCR was saying uh, these people are cheating us and so on. But I had a nice uh, chat with them and then I took this picture. So I let you decide, I let you interpret it, but I think once again there is much more than a view from the margins in these eyes. So before moving to the discussion on state and sovereignty, I would like to take a few seconds to talk about a friend of mine, Faraidun an Afghan refugee in Syria registered by the UNHCR. A young urbanite in the 1980s, he was, like many of his peers, kind of supportive of the pro-Soviet communist regime. After 92, he, was, he went into exile to escape social sanction and political imprisonment. After convoluted peregrinations, he ended up in Damascus with his wife and their children. At first, life seemed bearable. A safe place, compared to Afghanistan, as long as you don't get involved with national politics. The possibility for the children to be schooled in decent conditions. Some modest job opportunities for someone who was fluent in Persian. You know, around the shrines, the Shiite shrines uh, visited by, by Iranians, you have a lot of shops. And he was working in these kind of shops, being a translator for the Iranian buyers and uh, pilgrims. So everything obviously changed with the uprising of spring 2011. He has been seriously beaten, beaten a few weeks ago while he was waiting in a long queue to buy bread for his family. Some unknown men attacked the little crowd. <coughs> Faraidun was taken to the hospital with several fractured ribs. I have contacted some people at UNHCR headquarters in Geneva. Fully aware that someone like him is in a very difficult condition in Syria, they try to support his case without much success. He does not seem to be entitled to resettlement programs as potential countries of destination in the West only accept Iraqi refugees from Syria. While the institutions participating in the international refugee regime seem unable to provide much support, Faraidun is currently surviving thanks to some money sent by two of his brothers who are living in Europe. Increasingly isolated, stuck in Damascus, he's a typical example of what international organizations call a stranded migrant. But this is not independent of state practices and has also to do with bureaucratic categories. 
He has the wrong national identity at the wrong place and must just rely on his personal social ties. So I think this small story, tragic story somehow, is allowing me to enter in the, the first part of my, my talk, state and sovereignties. The concept of state and sovereignty are central to the debates on globalization, as we all know. As frequently announced, are we facing the ultimate crisis of the nation state as the, 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 the privileged holder of sovereignty in the light of the concomitant increase of transnational powers represented by the market and NGOs? As I hinted in my introduction, anthropology has documented the variety of political systems around the world. Anthropologists have studied political entities that are not states and have theorized power and authority in a non-state-centric way. I would like especially here to mention Pierre Clastre, the French anthropologist who in the 70s, for instance, showed not only that social order can exist without state, but that some societies, Amazonians in his case, are structured to prevent the advent of the state as if they had anticipated the, back, the, the, the drawbacks of the state. So the question of the crisis of the state seems by contrast to ensue from a narrow, should I say, sociocentric conception of state and sovereignty, from a normative, normative perception that takes the Westphalian model as the reference. Here, the state is viewed as having an equivocal authority over a discrete territory and its population, supposed to have a shared language and common culture. It has been characterized classically, we all know that, by Max Weber, as having the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence and the ability to extract revenues through taxation. State and sovereignty, but also territory and bureaucracy, are in such a model mutually constitutive concepts. So they are thought together, conceived together. To have a state, you have sovereignty. To have sovereignty, you have a territory. And you need to have a bureaucracy, which is just mirroring the rise of rational thinking. The picture may appear more complicated, though, if we historicize and contextualize these concepts. Thomas Birstecker, my colleague at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, or should I say my guide in these issues, conducts an uncompromising constructivist, he's a political scientist, constructivist critique of this tendency to treat states as fundamentally similar units in modern history. The, mod the model of the Westphalian state appears as a bureaucratic ideal that has probably never been fully achieved or realized. As acknowledged by two anthropologists here, Hansen and Steputat, the state indeed was probably never the privileged locus of sovereignty in much of the colonial and post-colonial world, where sovereignties are found in multiple and layered forms. The case of Afghanistan is really exemplary and unique at the same time. The country is a formal democracy. So I was always surprised with all the comments on you know, the Arab Spring, the rise of democracy. Looked from Pakistan and Afghanistan, let's say skepticism was dominant because Afghanistan and Pakistan are formal democracies. And obviously the fact to be formal democracies have not resolved any of their problems. And uh, I like to also remember the demographic balance between Egypt, the, the Arab giant, and Pakistan. 
which has twice the population of Egypt. And Afghanistan has three times the population of Syria. So obviously, looked from Afghanistan and Syria, Arab Spring could be a little, the importance, I would say, of Arab Spring could be a little bit qualified. So indeed, Afghanistan today is a formal democracy with an elected president and an elected parliament, but depends almost fully on for, foreign presence for the delivery of welfare services and for its security also. So Afghanistan, a formal democracy, is totally dependent on the external world to exist as a state. The Eisenhower study group in 2011, which is based at Brown University, estimates at 2.3 to 2.6 trillion US dollars, trillion, so trillion means 10, uh, 12, and 12 zeros, you know, that's a lot. That's million of million. So from 2 to, uh, to 2.3 to 2.6 trillion US dollars, the cost of war paid by the federal American government in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan since 9-11. The military is not concerned only with fighting. It is progressively adopting the explicit objective of using aid to win hearts and minds, gain support from local populations, and isolate insurgencies. The US Army main tool for funding stability operation and development projects is the Commander's Emergency Response Program, CERP. Its budget for Afghanistan jumped dramatically for, from 40 million in 2004 to approximately 1 billion today. That's a lot of money. Overall, 60% of the US reconstruction funds for Afghanistan have been allocated via the Department of Defense. So two-thirds of the money spent for development and reconstruction in Afghanistan, the US money, go, goes through the US Army. And only 18% via USIAD, so the equivalent of DFID, you know, in the US. So the extent to which the military as a global actor contributes to the reshaping of power structures and sovereignty deserve more study. That's not my topic. But the example of the CERP funding so many NGOs in Afghanistan should lead us to consider with salutary skepticism, that's an understatement, the idea that political authority is progressively dislodged from the state and the West invested in transnational NGOs. The relation between state and non-state actors is not a zero-sum game, where the waning of state power would directly result in the blossoming of NGOs. It seems difficult to consider them as antagonist camps when we look at how they cooperate in the enormous project of social engineering involved in conflict management and peace building in Afghanistan and so many places across the world. Globally, networks of international and non-governmental organizations are interfering on the domestic scenes of many states. They question the policy of the national governments, promote democracy and human rights, empower women, protect minority populations, and raise environmental issues. They may be allies of some states and serve as soft power to their foreign policy. Indeed, some authors point out that the role of NGOs in shaping and carrying out global governance functions is not an instance of transfer of power from the state to non-state actors. The supposed self-association capacity of civil society does not stand in opposition to the political power of the state. 
but it's, key, it's, it's, it's a key feature of how power operates in late modern society. In Afghanistan and elsewhere, and that's my current work on rural development, if you want, uh, in Afghanistan, people's subjectivity, the way they are, they are conceiving themselves and are perceived by others, is imperceptibly modified by their participation in various activities funded and monitored by the UN agencies and international NGOs, whose goal is to advance the values of democracy and human rights, to convince, not to coerce, in order to have people conduct themselves in accordance to the model of action promoted by them. Myself, I'm, I'm looking now as an anthropologist to workshops. We have all participated in workshops, and I wonder what is going on in workshops. And I try to, to understand them as rituals, as ceremonies, where something else than the content is at stake. So reading basically a workshop like a mass, and trying to understand how the participation into a mass is modifying the participants, and how they are perceiving themselves and being perceived by the the whole society. So the workshop is a kind of factory of social change here. The fact, these facts uh, that I just explained here can be grasped through the notion of coined by Foucault, which is overused now, but uh, let me use it again. Obviously, uh, governmentality, which is supposed to be the government of mentality, but it's also a form of power through the conduct of conducts. Once again, we convince, we don't coerce. In such a perspective, non-state actors, in particular NGOs, perform governmental tasks and may be seen as allies more than opponents of, stat, of state power. So that's the end, more or less, of my first part. So let me sum up my position in four points. Concepts like state and sovereignty must be historicized and contextualized. In the long durée, their meaning has never stopped changing. Moreover, actual states have probably never corresponded to the Westphalian's model. Two, only recently, with the breakup of the colonial empires, I'm talking about 50 years ago, uh, did the nation state become the generalized political entity in the whole world. That's quite a recent trend. So we cannot say just uh, it's the end of the st nation state while the, the nation state became generalized so recently. Actually, that the triumph of the nation state, that's, that was yesterday. Three, since the end of the Cold War, non-state actors are more visible on the international scene. They accompany more often than challenge the influence of powerful states. Four, globalization should not be equated with the last moments of the nation state. The importance of the state in international politics is far from having unilaterally faded in the last decades, as clearly expressed by the fate of Faraidun. Faraidun is supported by UNHCR, but his resettlement is blocked by the destination countries. So the most striking feature of today's world might be, once again, the coexistence between two kinds of sovereignties, which are sometimes cooperating, sometimes are clashing, the nation state and these transnational non-state networks. So now um, I, will, I, I move on the second part, so the situation of the refugees in such a world. So I have described a world where nation states and NGOs basically are not always competing but often cooperating. 
So what's the position and the way of defining themselves of refugees in such a world, especially once again where the state is not the exclusive locus of sovereignty, but it's still an important locus of sovereignty? So I would like to open this section with a, a brief clip from The Weeping Meadow, a film by the, the Greek um, producer Theo Angelopoulos, who was tragically killed a few months ago in a, in a traffic accident. That's the first film of a trilogy on the Greek history in the 20th century. It's three minutes, but I think it's worth to listen to it, and it's a little pause for you and for me. So I think it's a, it's a very moving uh, scene. Uh, each time I see it, I'm very touched. I think it's also a great piece of uh, visual art, really. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's supposed to take place in 1919. So when the unmaking of multi-ethnic empires, uh, the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the concomitant making of nation states were concurrently producing refugees. The international context is obviously very different today. Many forced displacement being caused by internal turmoil. But it expresses some fundamentals of the refugee condition. I like to, to I use it once in my class, asking students to react. But what I see in these scenes, and that I consider to be fundamental characteristics of the refugee condition is first, the passage on a narrow strip of land. So they are walking, and then they have to go through a very narrow piece of bridge of land between water, like a screening, a bureaucratic screening. Then they are blocked by the water, like a borderline. And what they have to say and to, to do when they are blocked by the, the water, they have to justify their identity, their presence, and have a narrative of the circumstances explaining their presence in a place where they are not supposed to be. And finally, I think, this last scene, which is at the same time moving and disturbing, we are looking at the suffering of these people in an indirect, fuzzy way. We don't stare at them, we stare at their reflection in the water. So I, I think we could write a, a whole article on just commenting this scene, which is indeed very telling of the fate of the refugees. Uh, and obviously, the temptation would be strong after Egon Kunz, an author often mentioned and quoted in refugee studies, obviously uh, quite an old author from the 70s, to consider refugee, the refugee as a distinct social type. That's a classical expression. But uh, Roger Zetter, whom is well known, I guess, here, taught us that people become labeled as refugees within the context of specific public policy uh, practices. Zetter demonstrates that first, these bureaucratic processes can be alienating, and second, the extreme vulnerability of refugees to impose labels. So refugees are not just a social type per se, they are produced as a social type somehow. And the main argument of my second part is that increasingly many potential refugees around the world, and not only Afghans, do not want such a regime of protection and assistance. Have they understood the alienating dimension of the refugee label? Probably. I tend indeed to discern an increasing mistrust of vulnerable people toward the international regime of aid and the services it provides. 
while grows their ability to explore the interstices of state policy and humanitarian action. Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher, speaks of humanitarian biopolitics to express the idea that people receiving humanitarian aid are deprived of their full humanity, being taken care in a very patronizing way. I would be very, very careful myself in adopting the Giorgio Agamben's theories and thesis on Homo Sacer and the bare life, which is inspiring, obviously, Zizek. It has been recurrently criticized by many anthropologists, even people who are inspired by them, on the ground that it fails, Agamben here, he fails to grasp the social life of people who are excluded from the political order and their capacity to develop efficient strategies. And that's very important, I think. We have to look at the refugees are still social actors capable to react and even to act. As we will see with the Afghans in Pakistan, refugees utilize the services provided by the international aid regime but the most successful people diversify their assets, their options, and are not trapped in the existing system of assistance only. The refugees are not necessarily in a limbo or reduced to bare life. The fact that they may be in a non-institutional land does not mean that they are in a no-society's land. Such a statement uh, that I hope you I, I really hope you will disagree with me. I, I really hope you will challenge me. I really hope you find it a kind of provocation, but I also hope it's a, it's a constructive provocation. So really, uh, it, at the same time, it's based on, on several years of research, as Don Chatty explained you, an observation among Afghans between their, countries of, uh, their country of origin, Pakistan, Iran, UAE, Turkey, Switzerland, France, UK, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, just to give you an idea of uh, where I'm going for vacation. So that's basically all my free time. Uh, uh, poor family, we'll say is just used to go everywhere where I know that Afghans can be found. And basically, they can be found everywhere, So, which is good for me. So while a vision of economies sans frontières with free circulation of capital and information is celebrated, the mobility of people meets constant obstacles, as we have seen once again in the case of Faridun. The current situation is particularly disfranchising for large segments of the world's population. In a recent conversation we had in Geneva, Jeff Crisp, the head of the Policy Development and Evaluation Service at UNHCR, probably all of you know him, told me, I quote, in the absence of permanent solutions to their plight, refugees are increasingly responding to their situation by pursuing alternative life strategies, frequently involving mobility, transnationalism, and irregularity. There are many protracted situations around the world where refugees languish for years in camps situated in remote and often arid regions, supposedly dependent on international aid. Not a very promising and appealing prospect, you may convey. So they are obliged to explore by their own alternative solutions to maximize opportunities and spread risks. Some go to nearby urban centers to find menial jobs and discreetly integrate into the host society social fabric and acquire local documents, like many Afghans did in Pakistan. Many try to move onward 
more often than not irregularity, irregularly in a sad Western. All strategies that are generally not viewed favorably by international stakeholders. So when refugees are somehow compelled to develop their own agency, they are criticized very often. As a response, calls for a better coordination between national policies related to migration are recurrently heard. I'm in Geneva and I can hear them through the walls. Uh, I tend to think that potential refugees and more generally migrants around the world listen to these calls with skepticism. They prefer to adopt another social and political stance. What the Italian, what the Italian uh, philosopher Paolo Virno has called engage withdrawal. An exodus defined as defection from the state, an act of resistance toward established power. It is, it is not a new positioning if we refer to James Scott's description of the art of not being governed in Southeast Asia. So for ages, large segments of the population try not to be under a state because that's very costly. So let me turn now to the strategy of Afghan refugees. <clears throat> Which solutions have they invented to deal with conflict and forced displacement without relying exclusively on the protection and assistance provided by humanitarian organizations? As we all know, the conflict that has been tearing Afghanistan apart since 1978 has caused one of the most massive displacements of population in recent time. Afghan formed the most numerous refugee group in the world, accounting in 1990 for about 6 million people, or 40% of the total falling under the mandate of the UNHCR. That's a huge population. Just to give you an idea, it's more than Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina population altogether. So it's, it's a major humanitarian crisis, and it's a major example and case study. Many Afghans strive to spread risks and diversify their assets, as I already said. They tend to distrust the authorities of their country of origin, but also those of the various countries of potential destination. Even the action of the myriads of international and non-governmental organizations, which have provided much assistance during more than 30 years of conflict, and I don't want to downplay that, be clear, but uh, they also regard this kind of support with much circumspection. As much as possible, they primarily rely on their social and cultural resources and selectively utilize humanitarian aid. Diversification, once again, uh, of political alliances, social ties, economic occupations, special locations, and legal, la legal labels is a guarantee in the event of a worsening of the security situation. I witnessed, for instance, how three Hazara brothers in the Hazni province, some, somewhere in the center of Afghanistan, decided explicitly to have each of them in a different faction. One will go to a party dominated by the Pashtuns, and the two others in two different parties, which were pro-Iranians, but still fighting each other. So in an insecure and quickly changing context, the explicit aim of the brothers was to have, in any case, a winner in the family. A somehow convergent strategy has been described by Pierre Sanlivre among the Afghans in the heydays of international assistance to the refugee in Pakistan, so the 80s. 
He examines how displaced people define themselves and the kind of resources available to them. He distinguishes three poles of Afghan identity in Pakistan. First, obviously, the international figure of the refugee as depicted by the 1951 convention. Such a definition carries with it the image of a person who needs to be legally protected and socioeconomically assisted by the international community. To receive food rations and benefit from health services and education facilities, Afghan quickly learned that they should not hide signs of distrust when meeting organizations participating in the system. The second identity poll is related to Islam. Afghans have repeated the migration of the Prophet Muhammad and his followers from Mecca to Medina, the headshot. When they left a country ruled by an impious government to go to Muslim lands. They are therefore called Muhajireen, the emigrants. This terminology does not designate victims in need of international compassion, but proactive people who are taking the utter risks for their faith, which is very valorizing. The third model is the Pashtun tribal code, the Pashtun Wali. Here, Afghans represent themselves as armed people uh, just having taken refuge among fellow tribesmen. So they just crossed an international border which is not conceived as a cultural and social boundary. The experience is conceived within a cycle of reciprocity between peers. This discourse has much appeal considering that the great bulk of the Afghan refugees in Pakistan in the 80s were Pashtuns. So to sum up here, Afghans in Pakistan had the ability to take benefit of the various facets of their situation, alternatively putting forward one or another figure according to the context. The status of refugee coexists with other labels, often more valorizing. The vast apparatus of international humanitarian aid was only one of the available resources they were able to tap in. So after having addressed the ability to diversify the political affiliations and play on different identities, I will turn very briefly uh, to my favorite, favorite topic, so mobility and transnationalism. Ongoing mobility and transnational net networks are at the core of the strategies developed by many Afghans and obviously by many other refugee and migrant communities around the world. These strategies include irregular activities, crossing borders, thanks to the services of people smugglers, remitting money through unregistered channels, bribing for getting identity documents or using forged ones, posing as another person, just to mention a few. Many people I meet, interview, and observe invent ways of circumventing bureaucratic controls, be it by a state, an international organization, or an NGO. These social strategies of mobility and blurred identities may be contrasted with the three solutions to the problem of the refugees promoted by the UNHCR. You all know that by heart, but let me just refresh your mind. So voluntary repatriation in the country of origin, integration in the host, in the host country, and resettlement in the third country. So they are based on the idea that solutions are found when, when movement stops, stop. 
As I have discussed elsewhere, a more comprehensive solution is needed, which takes into account the full range of strategies and responses developed by the Afghan population, including the back and forth movements between Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, and beyond. When movement is a solution, we should be very, very worried about promoting solutions which are just equating to stopping movements. Without negating, and I want to be very clear here, without negating the specificity of refugee in legal terms or minimizing at all the hardship they face, my research among Afghans convinced me that they are not mere victims, but people adapting to the world system using their social and cultural resources. Scattered between the Middle East, Western Europe, North America, Australia, and New Zealand, Afghans have retained and even developed their mechanism of solidarity and mutual support. These networks may prove to be more crucial for survival than support of humanitarian organizations, as illustrated again by the case of Faraidun, who is an Afghan refugee registered by the UNHCR in Syria. But even in spite of the fact of being registered, his social ties are more efficient than the international refugee regime. So I, I'm arriving now um, to my concluding remarks. In the first part of my lecture, I have discussed the evolving meaning of state and sovereignty. For, far from being characterized by unilateral waning of state power, I have argued that today's world is witnessing shifting sovereignties. NGOs may sometimes challenge state policies, but may also often complement them. The relations of NGOs are very different with the Afghan state than with their various state donors, like the United States, UK, or Germany. That's quite obvious. Moreover, states are neither equivalent to each other or monolithic. Different offices may compete for money and influence. In the North, as in the South, we have seen the CRP from the, 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 the Department of Defense and USID are competing for resources. And two Afghan ministries, too, are competing for resources, for the, the money coming from outside, like the Minister of Development and the Minister of Interior. So we have to look at the state apparatus uh, as, a, as a very, I would say, lively structure, which has to be studied ethnographically, not like an ontological entity. We should really conduct ethnographic research of sovereignty in practice without, once again, invoking the Westphalian model of the state. In the second part of my presentation, I examined what I perceived as the growing divorce between large segments of the world's population, on the one hand, and governments, UN agencies, and even NGOs on the other, looking at the case of the refugees, and more specifically, the Afghan refugees. Crisscrossing international borders, often irregularly, refugees and more generally migrants threatened the sovereignty of the state. And indeed, part of the hardship experienced by refugees and migrants are caused by the policies of destination countries. I described how Afghans are capable of inventing solutions to cope with violence and displacement that circumvent the official response to the plight of refugees. But do not misinterpret me. The local and the translocal should not be romanticized, neither. Transnational networks provide support, but also constraint. 
They present a complex balance between cooperation and solidarity on the one hand and competition and exploitation on the other. Sometimes we know migrants are exploited by their co-migrants who came a little bit earlier. So once again, I, won't, I, I don't want to depict such a gloomy or bleak uh, view of uh, NGOs, neither to, to, to give a bright perception of transnational networks. It's a very balanced perception, a very balanced situation. And moreover, uh, you have some you know, non-state sovereignty niches. Uh, I like to quote Caroline Humphrey, who has studied taxi drivers in a Siberian city and how taxi drivers are actually providing security to their own members, but obviously it's a mafioso system. And it's costly, because if you don't respect the rule, that's very risky, you, 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 the risk of your life. So uh, non-state niches of sovereignty may have high social costs, obviously. And everything is not transnational in the life of migrants or refugees, by far. Some people may prefer even to leave transnational social networks, like a friend of mine, Abdullah Khan, all the names are obviously modified, who settled in New Zealand with his wife and their seven children. Unable to meet the constant requests of his relatives in Afghanistan and Pakistan, he is almost hiding and asking his most trusted friends to screen people who contact him. So he just step away from the transnational networks. And that's also a hypothesis, a situation we have to consider seriously. So uh, I have stressed the limitation of the international refugee regime, but I resist the temptation to idealize the social tie, both in its local or translocal version. Globalization from below is not the solution. I open telling you that the inconclusive support people at the UNHCR headquarters in Geneva could give to Faraidun. What would be needed here is the assistance from local staff in Damascus, who could speed up the process moving Faraidun's file just from a few centimeters and put it on another pile. A modest clerk could possibly play a more crucial role in his life than the head of the office. With their injunction to turn the world upside down, Jean and John Komarov encourage us to question the narrative of progress and emancipation at the core of modernity. They show that the bleakest social and economic situations can be observed in the global south, but also some of the most inventing responses. Forgive me to end my lecture with an overused quotation by another Italian author, who will think I'm just very biased but it's Antonio Gramsci, uh, so it's pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And that's exactly what the Global South, here represented by the Afghan refugees, teaches us. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.